All right, quiet. Quiet on the set. The, the boom is still on the shot. It's, it's back. The it's, boom is back. It's unbelievable. We have a... All right. All right. The boom, the boom. All right, welcome, <laughs> welcome to uh, my show with that guy over there, Alex. And that guy over there, Jake. Yeah, and uh, today, actually, it's a, it's a three-man booth. Uh, we are bringing in a special guest, Dean Westwood, who's going to be talking to us today. Dean, how are you doing? Doing very well, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, we're we're going to be doing uh, an interview with Dean, but before that, we want to make sure uh, to plug our social media, as we, we often do. Make sure you're checking us out on Facebook, Red Arrow Productions. You can also reach us on Instagram by the same name, Twitter, at Red Arrow P. You, you guys know where it's at. You know how to find us if you found us. First of all, thank you. Second of all, you are in for a real treat. Uh, before yeah. before we jump into it, Alex, uh, do you have anything that that you'd like to, to say to our listener? No, I mean I think I think the like like you said it, the listeners in for a treat today. We got a real uh, a, a real interview with with an amazing guy uh, with with a with a great. I mean, I guess a, I wouldn't say a great story to tell because it's kind of sad, but uh, an interesting one for sure. So I think uh, I think we're in for a real treat, like you said. Excellent. Uh, so, uh, Dean, before before we you know before we get too serious in it, I gotta know. I, I just gotta get your opinion. What do you think the Ducks are gonna do this year on the gridiron? Oh, I've been very candid about this. I put out the bold prediction of ten and two. Ten and two. Ten and two. You heard it here. Holy cow! Who are the losses? Um. Uh, well, as much as I hate to say it, don't say it. Freaking hot. Their, their colors are purple, and they, um, they're they basically Roman packs. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> and if you can find a lower one, you should shave it. Yeah, yes, exactly. And then the other one, uh, for some ungodly reason, seems to worship a tree. Um, <laughs> so those are the two, without saying the name specifically, uh, kind of in a Trumpian style. Uh, that <laughs> too. Hey, you know what? I, Oregon, they've got a great football team. I've seen a lot of great football teams, and, uh, you know, I, I've got to say as far as great football teams go, I think this is a great football team. I agree. <laughs> I, yeah, see, firm grasp the obvious. Hey, you know, I, I, with, with that, I have the, uh, you know, what's apparently required to become president. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to argue. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, for for those uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Dean, Dean uh, is uh, a friend of mine uh, who is who is a uh, who has quadriplegia, I should say. Um, uh, he was also incarcerated in Oregon State Penitentiary, and those two things don't work very well together, as uh, you will hear with this podcast. But uh, but before we get into that, is there anything about that experience? Uh, that you'd like to, you know, just kind of give us a broad overview, maybe of the things that people don't know. Uh, just give us a real high-level flyover of, uh, of of your experiences there. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, to muster as much brevity as I can, I, I was incarcerated um, in uh, March of 2014. Uh, pled guilty to tax evasion, theft. Um, one of the major charges was unlawful obtaining of benefits, um, and as a result, was uh, sentenced to 18 months uh, in prison by Judge Block. Um, and 
upon uh, taking me from the courtroom, I think it became apparent to them if they were just to throw me in county jail, um, <laughs> I'd be dead within a, like a 48-hour period. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because, you know, vulnerability, but because they generally just, not generally, they specifically don't know what the hell to do with somebody with my level of disability. Um, and I think it's important to understand that my level of disability is, you know, as someone with quadriplegia, um, it means that, you know, I had a spinal cord injury at this certified five, six level, which left me paralyzed from the chest down. So uh, not only does it preclude me from standing or walking, I don't have the trunk control that, you know, you would see some of these Uber wheelchair athletes having and, you know, very little uh, arm function. Um, and then there's a whole array of uh, things that the body can do prior to a spinal cord injury that I couldn't do. That being said, uh, you know, I was shipped directly out to uh, to um, Wilsonville, uh, to Coffee Creek, which is kind of a clearinghouse institution where uh, men are taken for, so they can test them and then they ship them out to whatever hell hole they're going to ship them to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was there for a while and it became quite literally painfully apparent when I got there and they just uh, lifted me up uh, by my elbows, kind of chicken winging me and ripping my clothes off and jamming their clothes on me that these people had no idea what they were doing working with a quadriplegic, um, let alone somebody who had uh, been incarcerated for the first time. From there, I was sent out to Two Rivers Correctional Institution after, not basically, I was locked in my cell at uh, Coffee Creek for 17 days without any interaction and by default, um, you know, isolated and uh, confined prison in itself is confining. Um, then I was sent out to Two Rivers, which is uh, very well known as a high-level, nearly max security prison in Umatilla, Oregon. Um, but they have a lot of uh, sex offenders, rapists, pedophiles, you know, murderers uh, out there. So I didn't realize that until I was out there um, and other inmates started talking to me about it. And once again, I was put in default solitary confinement because they didn't know what to do with me uh, from an accessibility standpoint, from a need standpoint. So they threw me into a cell in the infirmary, and quite literally my recreation area was a um, a 20 by 15 foot slab of cement with 30 foot tall cinder block walls around it and a metal grate over the top of it that I could look through holes to see the sky. Um, that was a horrific experience and uh, you know, once again, they realized, hey, we have no idea what we're doing with somebody with quadriplegia, and we're just going to fake it till we make it. Um, so, you know, there were some issues that occurred there as far as, you know, being injured by people that didn't know how to transfer somebody with my level of disability and out of a chair and, uh, you know, being exposed to, uh, you know, all kinds of infectious diseases uh, that are in an infirmary. Uh, at one point, even getting my toes nearly ripped off because they had inmate orderlies oh. working with me, transferring me. And these guys were all pretty candid. Like, you know, in prison, there's not much, uh, you know, bullshit in between the lines. <laughs> you know, they tell you what the deal is, and they say, yeah, we ain't got no goddamn training here. And, you know, so we're going to do what we can and what we want to and, you know, take it from there. And at one point, some of my toes were nearly ripped off, and I'm bleeding profusely all over the cell floor. And finally, they get some nurse to come take a look at it about two hours later. By this time, I'm dropping, like, pints of blood. Um, and my foot 
with an open wound is sitting on a filthy cell room floor. Uh, suffice to say, when by the time she got in there, it was pretty dire. Uh, but the response was that, you know, we would normally take you to a hospital to get this stitch up and taken care of, but it's a Saturday, so, uh, you know, we're just going to wrap it as best we can. It, it's a Saturday? Um, that was that was their response? Saturday. Wait, That's are hospitals Saturday. closed on Saturdays, guys? I, I Not guess to my so. knowledge. <laughs> Holy shit. One might want to check with the Department of Corrections. It, it may be a barometer by which uh, you can judge <laughs> the level of... Uh, care and assistance I received it. You know, and it really it transcends the disability thing. You know, as a as a human being, you have basic rights, um, you know, to not be injured and, um, you know, if so, or harmed to have it medically addressed. Um, I remember distinctly, uh, you know, when a doctor finally got to me later the next week, by that time, I already had a uh, infection. Mm-hmm. And my leg and foot had ballooned up to like you know 20 times normal size it's a slight exaggeration but um <laughs> you know on ivs for two weeks because you know i got infected from my open wound sitting on a filthy uh, prison cell floor um once i escaped from that place uh metaphorically speaking i was sent over to oregon state penitentiary which it's well known this is just a gladiator camp um there's no pretense, um, no um, intimation, no illusion about uh, this being a correctional facility. Um, it's Oregon State Penitentiary, and they make no bones about it. Um, the interesting thing is that I was sent over there because I needed to have a surgery that they were already aware that I needed, um, a neurological surgery, um, when I was incarcerated. So they made me wait nearly a year to go back through the testing at the very same hospital, same neurology department at OHSU that already had sent them the orders telling them I need the surgery. So I'm shipped over to Oregon State Penn and it becomes really apparent to me that this is going to be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a uh, kind of a not kind of, I was in a dormitory setting and uh, you know, they don't fuss and muss there. Everybody there is like <laughs> hardcore criminals and they don't uh, they don't differentiate. You know, mine was a financial crime, ostensibly a victimless crime. Um, and I was at the lowest security threat level, A1. And I was housed through my entirety, including Oregon State Penitentiary, with six is the highest level of security in the state of Oregon. Um, it, it, there, uh, while I waited to get to my surgery, did more testing. I was, I was assaulted by another inmate who uh, this didn't take to me very well. Um, and that was uh, a brutal experience. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how much I can spend on it. I mean, it, um, some other inmates basically saved me, and that was uh, good. And one thing about prison, you know, is, if you know anything about it, and I certainly didn't, it's like it's not necessarily how tough or badass you are. It is a matter of, like, you know, are you smart enough to survive this shit? Right. Um, obviously, being a quad, I wasn't going to be able to defend myself. Um, but they value intelligence, and I think that's why I was saved. Um, you know, whether you're the toughest guy in, in prison or not, you know, if a gang of guys come at you, you're screwed. Yeah, um, it, it well, doesn't matter how tough you are if the knife cuts your neck. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that was a pretty horrific experience. I, Like I said, my life was saved by other inmates because they respected my intelligence and 
you know, I was able to help them with some legal documents. Inside prison, it's all about the quid pro quo, you know, the this for that. Um, nobody's really your buddy. Um, everybody wants something out of the uh, situation. Um, the other thing is, I was quite literally isolated in this uh, infirmary dorm the entire time. wasn't allowed to do any work. wasn't allowed to do much anything except for, you know, do medical appointments. Um, so I was there for about, I don't know, six months at Oregon State Penn. And uh, unfortunately, the surgeon they sent me to is the same one that, that initially, initially told them that you need to send this guy to a specialist out of state. And they just looked me right in the face and said, yeah, you're not going to get this surgery out of state, so take it or leave it. And, you know, it's kind of like a senior citizen who's on a restricted income or a fixed income. It's like if the only way they can get their nutritional value is by eating cheap dog food as opposed to regular human food that's a high nutritional value, that's not a choice, you know. Like, so I didn't really have a choice. Um, but I had to have the surgery, and as a result, you know, I unfortunately lost a lot of function out of that. Uh, but I survived it. I survived Oregon State Penn, and um, you know, although it's nightmarish um, at a biblical level, um, you know, I consider it not only a survive but a, a thrive thing now. Yeah, and for for those who are interested in a little bit more of the story, you you wrote a blog for uh, the ACLU, um, uh, just uh, briefly saying a lot of the same things but with a little bit more detail uh, we'll go ahead and link that uh, everywhere we can uh, we, we have a few links that we're going to send out um, but one, one question I would have is how I mean obviously your perspective is different now how did it change from before the time of your incarceration to after your perception of the uh, the correction system oh I, I mean Oregon is a measure 11 and measure 57 state Basically, what that means is, uh, uh, you know, and which is something I voted for huh, uh, way back in the day because I was an idiot and wasn't very well informed. Um, you know, with that, there, there, one key element is that there's mandatory sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, for all intents and purposes, they take the sentencing out of the judge's hands. So there's no discretion, you know, none of. None of the mitigating factors can be applied um, to sentencing. And I just was, I, I'm not going to sure, I was just stupid. I did not do my due diligence on voting for that thing. And I think a lot of Oregonians feel that way. So, um, you know, the lens was that, one, I didn't know that these mandatory minimums were being applied so egregiously. And two, I had no idea of the nonviolent criminals, victimless criminals um, that have been incarcerated uh, under Measure 11 and the matrix for sentencing uh, Measure 7 that are you know spending 20, 30, 40, 50, almost life in prison for nonviolent. I mean, a good example is, you know, uh, people who were growing marijuana, you know, down in uh, the South Country around Roseburg who, you know, the timber industry, timber industry went away and they needed to support their families. And, you know, these people got 30, 40, 50 years um, for that. And um, that's something that I learned a lot about. There's a lot of people incarcerated. And it's not the Department of Corrections that incarcerated them. It's these judges who are hamstrung by these mandatory minimums um, that are in prison. What I also learned is the Department of Corrections has no effing business uh, incarcerating people with uh, this level of disability. Because... They just 
don't know what they're doing. They don't have the resources and their facilities are just inherent. Oregon State Penitentiary was built before the University of Oregon. Uh, yeah, so I mean, just I've learned a myriad things, guys, but um, most importantly, uh, you know, you're not sent to prison to be punished. Your punishment is going to prison, but the Department of Corrections makes sure that you're going to get some extra punishment on top of that. And uh, whether it's uh, with malice of forethought or not, it doesn't uh, take away from the fact that people that go to prison um, are abused and tortured and punished more beyond the fact that their civil liberties are taken away. And as somebody with quadriplegia that was immersed in that, um, mine was a special kind of hell. Um, but to kind of tile up in a bow, the Department of Corrections doesn't know what they're doing. Our judges and prosecutors don't know what they're doing. And we're warehousing people with disabilities at a exponentially more expensive rate than it would be to help people stay out of prison. Oh, I, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of, you know, I, I had seen somewhere that they're, the whole private prison thing is starting to go away, and part of that is, is that reason, is, you know, we, we're, these aren't rehabilitation centers, they're basically cages for, for our unwanteds, essentially. Um, at least that's what, what I've seen. Uh, I mean, in, in so much you're talking about uh, the DOC, you said in uh, you were quoted in a Vice article by Rebecca McRae, uh, someone you have a lot of respect for, and I, I do as well, is saying that you don't think the Department of Corrections want to violate people's rights. If they don't, if they don't want to, is it just a case of the the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing, or the right hand just not knowing what it's doing at all? Well, I, I certainly think that those analogies could fit um here's the thing I, like i mentioned before whether there's malice forethought or not the harm is done um here's an example so when i prior to my incarceration uh, my sentencing was set over three times because we brought some of these issues to light um you know by the uh, aclu and a kind of the friend of the memo court that you know i was part of basically saying you know my rights are going to be violated inherently because they don't have the ability to not violate them. <laughs> right. Um, right. Um, so, you know, we had the, when we first posited that the judge was looking very seriously. It's like, you know, I'm not going to put this guy in prison. It's like, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Well, the prosecutor then went and got the head of all medical affairs for um, the Oregon department of corrections. And his name is escaped me. And then their uh, department of corrections, overall ADA coordinator who got on a, uh, a phone call testifying in front of the judge that, uh, oh, yes, we're going to take care of all of Mr. Westwood's medical needs, and of course we're not going to violate his ADA civil rights, um, which I understand if, if my boss basically was saying, hey, can you do your job? Hey, are you going to law? Hey, are you going to violate this person's civil rights? Well, hell no, I'm not going to tell him I'm going to do that. I'm going to say, no, sir, we're going to do everything we can to make sure Mr. Westwood is absolutely cozy and comfortable. We wouldn't dream of violating his civil rights. What reasonable person is going to say, no, I can't do my job on, uh, you know, on the record in court? Yeah, so, that's uh, that's public record. If, if you say that you yeah. can't do your job in, on public record, it's just get a new job. I, I mean, my train of logic follows, um, you know, so when I made that comment to Vice News uh, reporter, listen, I don't know these people at their heart. You know, they're not my buddies. Um, but I, I know that they have a lack of resources. I know that they don't tell judges, no, we can't take this person. Um, 
and and I also, you know, through my informal and formal conversations with people on the inside, staff, you know, it's officers, administrators, nurses, other staff. Uh, these are for the people I interact with. For the most part, they were decent, good people who were put in a very tough situation. Um, of okay, the judge and the prosecutor did their thing, and now they're just shoving the responsibility off onto the Department of Correction. And so, you know, I mean it when I say I don't believe that they were sitting in a darkly lit, smoke-filled room, twisting their handlebar mustaches, thinking, can't wait to get Dean Westwood the quadriplegic in here so that we can violate his rights. But that, um, that is a yeah. funny image. It is a funny image. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm sure that those, you know, Dudley Do-Right, you know, Canadian Mounties fought all kinds of those people. I just don't think people in the Department of Corrections, they got they got other things more important to do than worry about one dude, uh, you know, that's going to be there. I mean, so I stand by that statement. I've said it in testimony last uh, June in front of a, a, a Senate panel uh, where I testified on the abuse of inmates with disabilities um, under Senator Dick Durbin from Illinois' efforts to address these issues. And I'll say it again. I. I don't believe the Oregon Department of Corrections staff uh, personally had uh, malice of forethought and violated my rights. Doesn't mean they weren't violated. They clearly were. Um, but that's environmental. It's contextual. It's resource based. I think some of the sons of bitches are just mean and they want to violate your rights. Mm -hmm. So it does happen and they do it with malice of forethought. But I don't think it's an overwhelming uh, number of them. So my, my question, Dean, would be. If if it's a like you said an environmental contextual thing where they can't take care of uh, an inmate with with your level or probably even less than your level of disability, I'm sure that you know it's a it's a it's a varying range. But should should like disability on some level be applied to the like um, the justice system the way kind of insanity is where you can't. You know, like they have to find maybe uh, another way of another form of punishment, restitution. Your, I mean, yours being a financial thing, should should they look at something like a restitution-based punishment rather than an incarceration-based? Like, what would be a, a proposed idea or something that you may have come up with during all this to take care of somebody in your situation or similar to that? I I appreciate the the question because I I, I do think. Um, it's incredibly germane, and not just for people with physical disabilities, but let's focus on that for a second. And uh, I want to drill down further. Like the issue of the mental health, that comes into like pleas and does come into sentencing. You know, does this person have the mental capacity to know and understand what they did was wrong? And I'm, I'm obviously oversimplifying that, but let's just use that as an example. I mean, I, with a physical disability, um, knew and understand what I did was wrong, um, did it anyway. Uh, and it's a whole other conversation that I was addicted to opioids at the time, but uh, the fact of the matter is that, you know, mine was a physical disability and, you know, one could argue that when addicted to the opioids, that then steps into the other. This is purely a, a like a housing issue uh, from my lens, is that, you know, did I deserve to be punished? Yes. Um, did I deserve to be put in prisons where I was systematically um, uh, put in solitary confinement and abused? No. Um, you know, so I say that definitively 
Um, I there are other options. In fact, we we the judge we felt I'm certain was leaning the other direction of just giving me um, community service, maybe even an ankle bracelet, locked down, and uh, you know all the restitution. And interestingly enough, they not only you know ridiculed me in the press. You know I lost my career. That's my fault. But the, the judge then sentenced me to prison and is making me pay restitution. Wow. So I think that just the, the wheels came off the wagon in this one. And, uh, you know, this is a subjective uh, opinion of mine. I get that. But I was asked repeatedly in prison, why the hell are you in here? Um, and, I, and I believe then, as I believe now, that, you know, as somebody who had reached a certain level of success, um, you know, at OHSU was a fairly high profile individual with a disability. But this was a very clear message. It was like, if you do what this cat did, um, we're going to get you and we're going to punish you to the fullest extent of the law. Because if we'll throw a quad in prison, we'll certainly throw your ass in there. Uh, so, Max, to back your, the answer, there are a number of different things to do. The fact that I wasn't put in a, um, you know, a low security environment. For nonviolent offenders, um, you know, minimum security, which I should have been, and they actually violated my rights by not sending me there, means that they just don't have the ability to incarcerate people with these types of disabilities. And until they can without uh, violating their rights, it's the judge's responsibility to know this. Um, and so the judge made a decision um, that, you know, he was going to punish me at a certain level. He then heard testimony from the head of all medical at Oregon Department of Corrections and their uh, ADA coordinator that we can meet these needs. So there's a disconnect there. Um, they can certainly sentence people in a different way, um, but they have to be fully informed. And unfortunately, uh, these individuals with the Department of Corrections, um, they basically perjured themselves. Uh, and the, what's the judge to do? I mean, he's taking them at their face value and I'm He's looking at me like, oh, you're just some scumbag criminal. Um, so, yeah, there are a myriad other ways to do this, up to and including, um, you know, community service, fines, restitution, uh, loss of uh, uh, freedom, um, you know, uh, through ankle bracelets and home arrest. Um, it just didn't, they didn't want to apply it in my case. Hey, you kind of you kind of touched on my next question was which would have been uh, do you feel as though they they used you to make an example out of you uh, for for this situation? I have no doubt. There's zero hesitation uh, for me that that's what occurred. Um, you know, and, and people don't put that on a memo and blast it out to the press like we're going to use Mr. Westwood as an example and <laughs> the twirling um, but, mustaches again. Exactly. Well, I mean. I, like administrators and cops on the inside is what, what we call correctional officers and the nursing staff I kept saying it's like you know what the hell are you doing in here um, you know there's absolutely not nonviolent offender you know I had a criminal trespass against me for many years back because I wouldn't leave a property uh, when I was told to ostensibly a good citizen um, you know had an opioid addiction um, you know done a lot of good things with my life, not a, you know, somebody who had harmed me. And, you know, this crime was, you know, they say victimless. I mean, there's always a victim, but, um, you know, the money was going to be given back. And I wasn't even the largest recipient of the ill-gotten gain. Um, it was mainly insurance and stuff that went to my personal care provider. So 
there's just no good reason for to incarcerate. So, uh, you know, it's like Hockham's razor. Um, you know, sometimes the simplest explanation is the uh, accurate one. Fair enough. I mean, you, you, you touch on you touch on the, that that totally Hockham's razor totally went over my head and it to, it blew my mind for like I was like, okay, now I've got to look that up. So, oh, so, but I mean. It's, 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 yeah, go ahead, Jake. I'm oh yeah, sorry. Uh, I'll look it up. I'll look it up later. I'll do my own research. Now, for for someone like yourself, who is a very you know, I, I think our, our listeners can hear well-spoken, intelligent individual. Certainly, you know, your brain operates in a certain way. Now, not the same way as say someone else, a typical criminal who maybe made a mistake. Uh, you know, I don't I don't want to reach too far into the bag of hypotheticals here, but considering the way the the criminal mentality and someone who is a first time offender, something like that, if they get sent to a place like the state penitentiary where there is no focus on rehabilitation and only incarceration, you, you'd have to think that that would lead to a, a higher a higher rate of reoffending. Well. I I think that's an astute observation, and as you were saying, it, it uh, cued my memory. Uh, basically, places like Oregon State Penitentiary and even Two Rivers, they're doctoral programs to become a better criminal. Right. So you have lifelong criminals in there. They'll sit down with you, and you're having a random conversation or whatever, and they'll say, here's where you screwed up, and here's how you could have got away from it. Well, I've got a graduate degree. That sounds like a peer cohort brainstorming on ways to solve a problem. Now, the issue there is that, like the solving of the problem in that context is how can you do your crime better in the future so that you don't get caught so i would uh ag agree with you that um you know that increases the opportunity or the likelihood of recidivism um you know returning to prison and um there's just nothing that well not, not nothing i would be intrigued by an argument that says otherwise because i was in it and you know those are common conversations every day. It's like not only can we give you some guidance and feedback and mentorship, and we'll have dialogue about how to be a better criminal when you get out of here. We'll show you other crimes that you can commit. <laughs> that yeah. I mean, like you're saying, you're talking about you know putting criminals around criminals. It's like if you put a bunch of fishermen together, they're going to learn how to catch fish better. It's just the the way these things go. Uh, you talked about it being a doctoral program, you know, for a criminal. It's it's a funny turn of phrase. I did want to bring this up. Uh, in I, I believe it was in uh, your blog you mentioned that you were denied access or restricted access um, to to certain programs that the general population had available to you, including the library. Uh, did yeah. they, what was the reasoning behind that? Did they give one? Well, no, and that's the other thing. Like, uh, when you're in prison, it's not a debate. It's not a discussion. You know, like, there's them saying and you doing. Uh, you know, I, to be fair, there's something on the inside called a kite, um, which is basically an inter-prison memo that you can send to somebody asking questions, and they ask, they answer your questions. But when they tell you something, you know, there's no debate. You're, there's them saying and you doing. Uh, you know, I wasn't required to work. And as far as the library, at Oregon State Penitentiary, um, you know, Max, we were talking about this earlier, environmentally and from a construction standpoint, there was no way for me to get to those places. And the, the ways that they could get me there, because there was like a freight elevator and stuff like that, they just did flat out denied it to me. Um, so they don't, they don't work on making accommodations, reasonable accommodations under the ADA. 
which there's actually a portion of the ADA that apply to prison. Um, at Oregon State Penitentiary, I wasn't allowed to access it, uh, one, because it wasn't physically accessible, and two, because they flat out told me, it's like, we're not going to make these accommodations. We might be able to get you there, but we're not going to do it. And, it. and it transcended just the library. It went on to, like, any other activity. You know, when other people would go to do activities, I was, you know, in lockdown. Uh, I didn't get to go out to the yard at Oregon State Penitentiary until, like, 15 days before I was released. Um, so I, uh, all for all the reasons I stated at the beginning of our conversation, um, you know, those things occur. And, um, you know, just one of them was the library, um, up to and including access to the law library, which is, you know, a basic right. We have the right to defend ourselves. And I wasn't given that right. A constitutional right. Exactly. I mean, and then also the Eighth Amendment about, you know, cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so. You know, you can go you can go round and round and round on this thing and you know from my lens it seems pretty obvious but I think it's important for your listeners I mean this is my lens um, you know I try to be truthful with myself about myself and I learned that from my sensei or Buddhist teacher on the inside of my a man serving multiple life prison sentences for basically being you know an assassin and a soldier of fortune um, and so you know I get it you know though probably people that you know listen to your podcast and say yeah this is just another scumbag criminal of course he's going to say that uh my response is that you know okay i understand your perspective but everything that i've said and continue to say is verifiable you know there's multiple sources that can verify it yeah and and we will link those sources if anyone has any questions there will be links to them Uh, yeah I, I, I said to Alex uh, when we were talking about this and, and I sent him the links uh, to read, I, I described uh, what happened in your case and certainly the case of others, which we'll, we'll get to here momentarily. I described it as a miscarriage of justice. And, and like I said that almost, um, I, I wouldn't say flippantly, but, I, but I, ju- I said it. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized this ha- this is and was a miscarriage of justice. W- would you concur with that? Well, I know what I'm thinking when I hear those words, Jake, but maybe you could help me understand what you're thinking because you know, it's not for me to uh, you know, place that lens in someone's head. So it's important for me when you say that, um, that you be specific for me so that I can then respond in kind. Okay, well, um, let me, I'll say this then. Um, you, you did a crime. You were sentenced to, to a term that was considered justice. The way they carried out that justice, they did it wrongly. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a very specific and thank you for that. I, I now I can wrap my head around your text. Uh, the short answer is I agree with you, or if that's what you're saying, that if that's your position, that they did do it wrongly, and they not only did it wrongly in the um, you know, let me step back for a second. I deserve to be punished and sentenced. So for anybody out there that thinks, nah, this guy's like, no, I did. I absolutely did. That's one of the reasons why I pled guilty. Uh, I wish they would have looked at the fact that I was addicted to opioids. Um, But I also did it, um, and I haven't shared this with people. Um, One of my family members, they came after them, and they're telling me that this person is going to be slammed in prison and their children aren't going to see them and other things like that, which is a common practice. It doesn't just happen on CSI. It's real. Um, 
and uh, you know, so I I pled guilty one because I did it, and two because I I wanted uh, wanted this person to be okay, and in fact it's in my testimony on the record during the sentencing. I just didn't want this person hurt. Um, you know, all of that being said, it was a miscarriage of justice because my crime didn't warrant me being, you know, confined in solitary confinement. It certainly didn't warrant me being put in with prisoners at a level five or six security threat when I was a one. And it certainly didn't uh, merit the physical abuses, um, the um, civil rights violations, and the mental um, torture that I endured by being put in default solitary confinement, by being, you know, uh, isolated from all the other programs that would have reduced my sentence or prepared me for getting out or just kept my mind sane. Um, so I, I do believe that in the action of falling through on my punishment, um, that they, they dropped the ball in its entirety. And uh, it was a miscarriage. It was, you know, my rights were violated. They saw that I, I, you can put all the adjectives in there. I completely agree with your assessment that this was a miscarriage of justice, and they just screwed up. They just really did. Well, I'd, I'd like to, to move on from there. Before I do, Alex, do you have any any further questions about uh, his time um, in, in uh, incarcerated? Oh, I mean, not, nothing more that isn't and expanding upon you know a topic that I feel like we've discussed in depth. It just it it seems to me with the way you're describing everything, Dean, that that not only was it what could be called a miscarriage of justice, but it was almost done seemingly defiantly within the within the correctional facility itself. In that you know they 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 just told you no when it came to finding a way around getting you to the library and things like that. So it, as much as it was, um, you know, like you like you said originally, the the DOC didn't want to violate your rights. They had to because of environmental things. It, it seems like on the inside it was it was almost a choice where they they didn't they didn't want to take the extra effort to to help you as an individual, a criminal or not. You know, you, you, like we said, we all have inalienable rights, and and some of those were just taken from you by choice. They just said no. I would agree with that, and it's, I'm glad you brought that up, Max, because when I was at it, Two Rivers, I sent that kite, that interrupts memo to my supposed counselor, case manager, whatever, who all the other inmates jokes like this cat's never going to get back to you. And I thought, well, what, I'm in prison. What else I got to do with my time? <laughs> so I, I, you know, I said it to him and I said, uh, I'm a level one minimum security inmate. Why am I being housed in a maximum security facility? And why am I being housed so far away from my family members, my, my loved ones and supports who the department of Corrections shouts on high, you need those people to stop recidivism and to, to rehab correctly. Why am I being held out here away from all of that and being held at a maximum security? And I actually still have the kite. I, I memorialized all this. This is not without, as um, Comey would say, without memorializing. Um, I, uh, I got this kite back from him, and he just wrote, we'll put you where we want, when we want. And oh. um, that's the paradigm. That's the overarching thought process um, that goes on. I want to just follow up with that, that there were a lot of great 
kind, decent, and considerate people that I interacted with in all three of those institutions. And some of those people also saved my life. Um, I remember this incredible nurse at the Toffee Creek when I was thinking, you know, these walls are like, you know, these white cinder block walls are just encroaching on me here and I'm going nuts. I'm looking for ways to just off myself. Like, can I just beat my head against this cell wall to where like, you know, hopefully they'll do enough trauma that they'll off me themselves. And she was kind and considerate and said, you know, once you get to your home institution, funny word for it, um, you'll uh, think it'll get better. You'll have more freedoms. Well, she didn't know at that time I wouldn't and that I'd suffer more abuse. But she was kind and she was caring. And there was a, a nurse named Amy Wheeler at Oregon State Penitentiary who first thing she asked me is like, uh, what the hell are you doing in here? But she was kind. She was considerate. We had very um, cerebral and caring conversations. She even shared with me, you know, her dad who lives back in Kentucky was curious, like, why the hell is this guy in there? Um, there were officers that were uh, very cruel um, and almost, not almost, they were third world country cruel. And then some of them that, you know, were very nice and there were administrators that were good. So I think it's a microcosm of our larger society, guys. It's like there's good people and there's bad people and, you know, there's good things that happen to people and there's bad things just when you're in prison, everything is amplified, and any uh, preconceived notions about, you know, how tough you are, how smart you are, whatever, those are thrown out the window because, um, you know, prison is, um, you know, it's 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 war on a um, locked-in level. That's that's an interesting way to put it. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um... I'd like to, to move on uh, from, from yeah. your time in prison. Since then, uh, I, I know you, you had gone to D.C. Uh, to kind of talk about this. You, you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So I've been working with the ACLU since uh, about a year or so after I was uh, released from incarceration. Um, and this incredible uh, individual named Jamelia Morgan, who um, was doing her uh, – her uh, Yale fellowship with the ACLU back in D.C., looking at the issues of abuse uh, and uh, college confinement of inmates with disabilities. And um, so she found me through some of her other contacts. And from there, she was doing this amazing report, and she interviewed me. And as we spoke more and more together, I, you know, I told her that I, I wanted to uh, help as much as I can. I wanted to be an advocate. I wanted to share my story in the context that, it might uh, help along these reforms. And through that process, and, you know, I was then asked when the report was done to do some interviews, Vice News and others, and, um, you know, happily agreed to that. And then as we moved forward with it, um, they started sharing me, with me the bipartisan effort, uh, you know, on the Hill, um, not only the House and the Senate, the Senate, uh, you know, people understanding that, you know, the correction system and the justice system was just out of control and was being addressed under the Obama administration. And unfortunately now, fortunately now we've got, you know, a lapse in that. But Senator Dick Durbin out of Illinois had done work um, in that arena, and he was putting together a panel uh, hosted by the ACLU in his office to uh, bring people in who uh, experienced disability and were uh, incarcerated and suffered the kind of abuses that I did. Um, and so through that process and communicating, I was asked to come out and um, be part of this panel that educated senators on uh, these issues. Um, and so 
in that process, you know, I shared exactly what I'm sharing with you guys, and, and I've always done my best to be candid. I also said that, because you know, both sides of the aisles, like whether you're Republican, Democrat, or whatever, it's like people can see that this is just wrong. And even if it's you, you, you don't oppose it from a moral standpoint or just the abuses or human rights or civil rights, the cost of incarcerating people with disabilities is exponentially greater than that it takes to incarcerate somebody with a disability. Here's an example. Like, um, you know, it is, uh, it is estimated that my stay, uh, stay, I use the term loosely, with the organ, the fine folks at the Oregon Department of Corrections cost them nearly eight times as much as anything that I financially gain. Wow. Um, and, and that's, and that's, there's things that are, you know, immeasurable beyond that. You know, the harm that was done, uh, to somebody who, for all intents and purposes, up to that point, had not only contributed to society, but had written and got grants funded that employed people not only in Oregon, but across the Western U.S., um, you know, and had contributed uh, for quite a while. So um, that effort, I've really been enjoying, guys, because it's shining a light on this and it's proactive looking at solutions that we can put forward. So I was uh, honored to be part of that panel and I continue to work with the ACLU um, and we'll be working more with uh, Disability Rights Oregon here in the state of Oregon that looks out for the rights of people with disabilities and hopefully our state legislature coming up in the next session to move forward, not just the identifying and the shining the light on these issues, but you know, talking to people and trying to come up with solutions and um, being part of that is better than just being one of those guys that got out of prison and is just angry and bitter and just wants to bitch. Yeah, and, and that, that is a big part of it. You, you bring that up, like you, you're actively looking for solutions. Now, this this is something that has to go both ways. Are, are you receiving any feedback from the Department of Corrections about what the, what the panel, what the ACLU, what you, know, what you guys are, are bringing to them and saying, hey, th these are the problems, you need to fix them. Are, have you guys gotten any feedback uh, from, from any departments of correction? Well, so being back there and it's more on a federal level um, as opposed to a state, um, but they, you know, they bleed over. I haven't gotten that personal feedback, and I'm sure the ACLS, ACLU has. Um, this all is uh, materializing in the larger context of what uh, not only the ACLU, but the Senate and the House are having to deal with with uh, the current administration in office. So as I'm sure you guys can understand, these things get pushed way back yeah. or way down the priority level. And so um, it's not that these things aren't important and that you know the representatives don't think they're important, or the ACLU, or anyone else. It's just you know when you're dealing with macro levels of basically the uh, you know assault on the union, um, <laughs> these things take a back seat, and I think uh, rightfully so, rightfully so. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know there aren't conversations going on. In fact, while I was back there, I met with um, Senator Wyden's staff, and they were encouraged by wanting to take the information and uh, partner with Senator Durbin on uh, future legislation. So there, if you, if people want to go to Senator Durbin's site or the ACLU National Prison Project website, um, they can get more updated information about that um, and the efforts that are ongoing uh, in a very positive way, I believe. Excellent. 
now for someone, if there's someone who wants to get involved, who wants to help help with this uh, the situation and, and and try to work for a solution, what what's the best way for for a layman uh, to to kind of you know step up and, and start fighting windmills, as it were? Well, I mean, I what I have always advocated is that people do their own research. Um, you know, I'm just some you know faceless head out here talking on a wonderful podcast. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, but I mean, you guys have the links. You'll be sharing the links. Those are our sources. In in some of those sources, like Caged In, it's the first ever national report on these issues. But I would encourage people to do their own research and look at the lens. Um, I don't think it's even an uh, opposition. I don't think, you know, the, the not necessarily the justice system, but, you know, the incarceration system aspect they they're wanting to partner on addressing this you know so having people do their own research looking at this going to senator durbin's site going to the aclu national prison project maybe getting some contrary opinions from out there and i'm sure they can be found um i think that that lays a foundation for people that if they want to move forward to action they're basing it on what they believe and have researched as to be factual. And in this day and age, I can't emphasize that enough, that, you know, moving forward from a factional basis. But there are no shortage. I mean, the ACLU, um, you know, has myriad opportunities. Um, there's also an organization called CURE, C-U-R-E, that one can Google around the efforts of family and advocates to fight for the rights of individuals who are incarcerated still, uh, including disability rights. Um, you can also get in contact with your each state's uh, P&A, Protection and Advocacy, uh, Disability Rights Oregon here in, uh, in Oregon. Um, I'm on the board of directors for that, and when I was incarcerated, they were they were looking into checking and saying, hey, is this guy going to die? Is he going to come out here or whatever? So, PNAs are a good source. Protection and advocacy organizations in each state are a good source of information. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, anecdotally or listening to podcasts like uh, like this show uh, helps people get a broad depth and breadth of the lenses out there. And then once you think you have enough of that, then it's easy to move to action through all those sources I cited. Well, yeah, cer certainly education is is the first step in something like this. And and. The, the idea that I had was certainly, you know, get you on the show uh, so so you can verbalize it because I know how difficult it is for the for a lot of people to read anything. And so maybe if they can listen and hear someone right. and, and, you know, hear what you have to say, uh, you know, may, maybe that can bring some more light to the issue. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, I, I want to step back on this real quick because, By all means. you know, what, once somebody comes out of incarceration and you know or you know a correctionals correctional facility there's a lot of short-sightedness and when we want to punish people we want to put them in prison and trust me I met a lot of people inside that need to be in prison um, it's like what what's the toll that taxpayers and citizens pay not just why they're incarcerated when they get out you know you've taken a functioning human being now is that functioning human being going to move forward and not only from a moral and ethical standpoint do good things, are they going to be able to contribute back to this larger context of our communities and our societies, or are they going to be a lifelong drain 
on those communities and the resources of those communities. Um, yeah, having gotten, I'll use myself as an example, having gotten out now, um, even though I committed the crimes I did and uh, was, you know, pled guilty of those, um, I was still paying for, you know, before my incarceration for most of my life, you know, all of the things, um, you know, that I did up to and including having phenomenal insurance by my employer and uh, being able to pay for my own personal care assistance out of pocket mostly and all those other things. Right now, I'm solely dependent on the taxpayers of the state of Oregon, the taxpayers of this country for everything that I get and do. That's a, I mean, that's my uh, money to sustain, my money to buy groceries, my money to rent, my, um, my health care, my dental, um, you name it, the taxpayers uh, of the state of Oregon and nationally are picking up that tab because of the short-sightedness of prosecutors and judges that sentence people there and then the Department of Corrections not having the ability to actually correct these things um, through training um, and access to resources. So I, even if you just think, yeah, this guy's a dirtbag and of course you're going to say, and all those other people in prison, they deserve to be there. Well, guess what? I not only mo voted for Measure 11 and 57, now I've been a Republican, a, a moderate Republican ever since I could vote, and I always thought, you know, listen, those scumbags are exactly where they needed to be, and then it's like the old Berettas or whatever there was, don't do the crimes, you can't do the time. Well, okay, that's fine, let's just put all that out there. I'm a scumbag like everybody else that's broken the law. You want to keep paying for this scumbag to live every day? out of your tax dollars, or would you rather those tax dollars go to schools for your kids or social safety nets for seniors um, or, you know, infrastructure, making sure that your road is able to drive on and that you're safe when you drink water or eat food? Um, or would you rather just have that money go towards uh, supporting that scumbag for eternity? Uh, and so I think it's a, a relevant question that people have to think about um, when we take the responsibility of incarcerating people and not making sure that they can get back into society and contribute like all other people. Well, yeah, and I think that all of that would apply to to like the non-disabled, you know, convicts who are released have have done their time for their crime or whatever, and they come out and they've got that conviction on the record. Maybe they can't find as good of a paying job as they have to, so now they're on welfare, job. food stamps, any job, like any job. Yeah, so now they're on welfare, food stamps, doing all of that, going to the free clinics to get their kids or themselves checked on and stuff. And so it's it's not it's not even just the 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 disabled you know former inmates. It's it's every inmate comes out and is is part of that struggle that our tax dollars and everybody else they remain unfortunately. A drain on society. Now, you know, some of them can can get through that. You'll hear all those success stories and movies and on the news and everything. But so many of them are forced into a life of of relying on taxpayers to support them. That it's it's definitely something that needs to be taken into consideration on on an, a universal level when it comes to to this. Mac, I, once again, I completely agree with you and. Uh... You know whether there's disability or not, that uh, ongoing cycle, uh, you know, is perpetuated by, um, you know, the kind of these systems, the justice system and uh, the correctional system. And yeah, I completely agree with you. It's not just those individuals with disabilities. Uh, an interesting thing about Portland and um, other cities and states are now doing is that when you apply for a job now in the city of Portland, um, they can't ask you about your criminal record. Really. 
They can't even they can't even look into it until they've made you a tentative job offer. I forget what the name of that program is, but I mean it's 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 the law here in the city of Portland ordinance and um uh yeah, so it opens up that door to look at uh you know formerly incarcerated individuals and like well, do, do these can these people do the essential functions of the job and are they going to be good hire and look at it from that perspective and then at the end you get a chance to look at what their crimes were and you make a decision based on the crime, the length of time it's been since then and whether or not uh you know variables at that work environment would be hindered or um you know positively impacted. Um so there are steps out there and there's a lot of people that get that. Um but that has not stopped nor will it stop cold turkey the uh drain on resources by people that come back out into the community and uh you know, are unable to move forward. I, I, as a little kind of pat on my own back, I'm slowly moving out of that, you know. Um, I don't want to be on any of this crap, use the expression, I don't. I, uh, most of my life, I've always, you know, fought against the, uh, the dependence um, and the uh, entitlement. Now, it's funny because the prosecutor said, ah, this guy's all about entitlement. Well, no, I'm actually not. And whether I have a disability or not, I don't want to be on these things because, one, it's just not right. It's good, and I would get bored. I need to work and be productive. But two, um, those things, those programs, those services, that money uh, allows those agencies to be invasive in your life. And um, I don't consider that a path to self-determination. I consider it a path to dependence, and I'm doing everything I can and will continue to do everything I can to get completely off of that stuff. But a lot of people don't have the option to do that. So I would completely agree with you, Alex. So, so Dean, uh, you know, we're, we're gonna, we're, we're getting to it. I think we're gonna come up to our wrap here. Uh, if people, if people want to interact with you directly, what, what's uh, a good route to do that? Well, so, I mean, I'm on Twitter, um, D West 64, the D and the W are, uh, capitalized um yeah i used uh face crack and instagram as well um and i mean if, if somebody's <laughs> serious about uh, you know interacting you know uh, via email um i'm you're welcome to share that um Jack, I think, or jake i think you have my email or do you not um i i do not but it's not difficult for me to get yeah okay so I mean, I, if you guys want, I can share it now, um, or you can put it in later. It's up to you. That, that, um, I would say it's your email address. It's up to you if you want to share it right now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it's uh, it's at gmail dot com. That's chatbot at gmail dot com. Um, now I have the ability to filter out, block, or stop people. So if they go off the rails, and you know that's that's on me. I control that environment. Fair enough. And I would encourage people to get get those links that you guys are sharing. Check out that report page, Dan, um, you know, the solitary confinement of individuals with disabilities, and just educate themselves. And if somebody, you know, wants, uh, you know, resources from me, you know, they can email me, and I'll do my best to get back to them. Well, excellent. Well, Dean, I, I really want to thank you for uh, for the time that you've taken to, to talk to us. Is there anything that you'd like to share before uh, before we go into our sign-off? No, I'm just really grateful for the opportunity, guys, um, to share this, and I appreciate 
Um, and that, I think, goes beyond me appreciating. I think a lot of people appreciate, you know, these opportunities to just put something out there so that people can listen to it and then make their own decisions um, based on that. And, I, you know, podcasts are a wonderful vehicle for that. I appreciate your guys' style in doing this. It wasn't heavy-handed. Um, and I would just wrap by saying, uh, you know, once again, I stand by my prediction of 10-2 and two for the mighty Oregon Ducks. <laughs> and, uh, we'll see how it goes from there. And, uh, you know, I'm thrilled with what Willie Taggart and the people are doing there and just thrilled at the character uh, of the program throughout. Even when we went 4-8, I thought our character was intact. And it's nice to just pair that character of the University of Oregon with winning. So let's yep. get back on that. And, yeah, thanks, Jake. Thanks, uh, Alex. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Al- Alex. Uh, Alex, you got anything? Um, I mean, I think that uh, I just respectfully agree with the ten and two prediction. I, I've been saying that. Uh, you know, that w- that was my prediction. Willie Taggart looks like a guy who's going to come in, and he he seems like a real coach. Helfridge always seemed a little hesitant in uh, interviews and, and stuff like that, and, and Taggart <laughs> seems to grab that, grab the mic and just just run those kind of things. So I think, uh, you know, in the words of him, do something. You know, it's it's going to yeah. be great. It's going to be a good season. Yeah, and I can tell you firsthand about Helfridge on the microphone, but that's another podcast. For <laughs> that's <now>. another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> anyway, so anyway, you could have been anywhere in the world, but we want to thank you. You spent your time here with us. We appreciate that. Our song today, Business by Eminem, because hey, let's get down to business. So, for this episode of my show, I'm Jake. I'm Alex. And for our special guest, I'm Dino. <laughs> there we go. Hey, good night, universe. That's a podcast.